0: All right, so we're taking a little bit of a break from our norm uh, in the book of Acts uh, due to the season and some people being out of town or many people being out of town. So we're going to take a little break from Acts. And I'm going to talk to you this morning about hypocrisy and secret religion. I want to talk to you about some of these things. So let's take a second to pray and ask God for help. And we'll we'll move in that direction, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come before you right now. We can come bow down to you. Under the authority and submission to your word. Your word is perfect and glorious. Living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a lamp to our feet, light to our path. Breathed out by you. Able to equip us for every good work. Your word is like a fire. Like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God, we take your word. And God, we want to see truth here. We want to be conformed to your image, Lord Jesus. We want to be like you. God, we want to be moved by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit in our lives to conform to the truth we see here. God, most of us here know that hypocrisy is a sin. We know that, Lord. But God, we need that work from your Spirit where you... Will you open our eyes, God, you help us not to just know a fact, God, but to feel it deep in our bones and feel the warnings of your scriptures about hypocrisy. God, most of us here know what your word says about the secret place, about secret religion, Lord. And, and But God, I pray that by your spirit that you would help us to see the importance of these things, the way that you view these things, Lord. God, help us to know what it is to dwell with you, abide with you in the secret place, have communion with you, Lord. God, please help us now in your word. Father, help us. Help me to preach, Lord, in the ability that you supply. And I pray, Lord, that you would help every person here, here, Hear your word and the ability, with the ability that you supply. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the love of brothers and sisters, God, that you put here. You made us such a family together. We praise you for that, Lord. Move us by your word now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So I want to talk to you about hypocrisy and secret religion. We're not going to go there just yet. But we'll, we will mainly be in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, but Let me just say a few things. Uh, I want you to notice a few things or, or meditate on a few things with me for a moment about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus for a minute. One place I would encourage you to think about the scriptures is Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 4. If you remember Luke chapter 3, you've got this passage of scripture where a massive... A massive moment in the life of Christ on this earth is coming, where Jesus is going to be baptized in Luke chapter three. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And you think about what happens. I mean, Christ, he has come, incarnated on a rescue mission to save. He's we've seen a little insight into Jesus as a twelve-year-old in Luke, and then you get to Luke three, and you got this beginning of his earthly ministry moment, and what happens? The sky splits open as he's baptized by John the Baptist. The sky splits open. This mighty thundering voice from heaven says, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And so here's this moment. You imagine the multitudes around seeing this moment with Christ where the Holy Spirit descends upon him. The sky split and they hear this booming voice from heaven. Imagine this moment. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And what's the next step we see that Jesus does? What's the next thing that he does? And in Luke chapter four, it says he full of the Holy Spirit does something that we don't expect. He goes off into the wilderness for 40 days of secret fasting. We go, what's this all about? Here's this beginning of His ministry. The beginning of His earthly ministry. This massive moment before the multitudes has just gone down. And what's your next turn, Christ? And He turns and He goes 40 days fasting in the wilderness. That tells us something about Christ. About our Savior. Let me give you another place. Mark chapter 1. You're welcome to flip there with me. I want you to notice this about Jesus. Mark chapter 1. Verse 28 says this about Jesus. It says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So here's this man. His fame is spreading everywhere. His fame, he is becoming known all over this region. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And listen. Listen. The whole city was was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. His fame is spreading everywhere. The whole city is gathered together at the door of the place where he stayed. He's healing people and casting out demons. He's got the multitudes eating out of the palm of his hand. And then what does he do? What's his next pivot? Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. The multitudes are eating out of his hands. His fame is spreading. And what does he do? He wakes up that next morning. He goes to a desolate place. And there he prays. I love this. The disciples looking for him. Verse thirty. 36 right here says, And Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him. So they're looking for him. Where'd he go? And they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. So here's Christ. The multitudes bending at his will. The multitudes are there. And what is he doing? We see him secret fasting 40 days in the wilderness. We see him going out to a desolate place for secret prayer. Now, what do we learn from this? What, what does this teach us about Christ it, and here's what I want you to see Jesus lived this life before the multitudes okay he 's not a monk he 's not a hermit somewhere. He lived a life before the multitudes. He fellowshipped with the multitudes. he ministered among the multitudes. We know that that's true, but he also has this life that is alone with the Father. He has this life alone with the Father in the secret. Place. He's not a hypocrite just living his life just before people, just to be seen by people. But the man Christ Jesus, he goes and he gets alone in secret prayer, in secret fasting, alone with the Father in a secret place. Now, we see Jesus throughout the Gospels as he condemns the hypocrisy of living a life just to be seen by others, doing spiritual, religious things just to be seen by others. We see him condemning that throughout the Gospels. We also see him commending the Commending people that live this life just alone before the Father. Even in things of service, they serve people and give and things along those lines. And they do it just because God sees it, not that anyone else might see. We see Jesus commending this secret religion. So this is what I want to speak to you. At the beginning of this new year, so we take a little break from Acts for just a moment. I want us to talk about hypocrisy that we don't see in Christ right here. And the secret secret religion that we do see. Now I need to explain what I mean by those terms very quickly. Okay, So I want to explain, define for you, hypocrisy and secret religion. Hypocrisy. Webster says it like this. He says, it's pretending to possess virtues or beliefs or a person who pretends to be what he is not. Jesus speaks about it as, on the outside you look beautiful. On the outside before men to be seen by others, but inside there's not a reality there between you and God. The integrity, the authenticity is not there, but you look a certain way before others. That's hypocrisy as Jesus explains it in Mark as Matthew 6 and other places. So that's hypocrisy. All right. Secret religion. <clears throat> I don't mean religion in... Uh, the bad sense that is often used today, I mean religion in a good sense, as in James one twenty seven, pure and undefiled religion. I'm talking about a devotion to God, secret religion, a devotion to God. By secret religion, I don't mean as if you're hiding something, as if uh, there's some kind of secret cult. I don't mean that kind of secret religion, but secret as in. Not just public devotion to God, for lack of a better term, but private devotion to God, secret devotion to God. When it's just you and him, what do you like? What do you do? Secret religion. That's what I mean. Now, Webster, again, he defines secret as to conceal or to hide or private. You might think of a little child saying, hey, can you keep a secret? Can you keep a secret? Can you hide something? Can you conceal something? And usually secrecy is seen as something negative, right? It's something to where I'm hiding in darkness because I don't want to be confronted with the light. It's secrecy. But there's also a sense in which secret actions can be seen as a, a positive thing or as as a virtue. That's what we see, for example, in Matthew chapter 6 where we're going to just a little bit of this Go into the Father in the secret place. Not just to be standing in the synagogues to be seen by men, but go into the Father in the secret the secret place so it can be a virtue. It can be a virtue. Now these two things, hypocrisy and secret religion, they are connected. And I want you to see this. Hypocrisy and secret religion, these things are very, very connected. In other words, think about it like this. To be lacking in the secret devotion to God, the secret duties, the secret religion. To be lacking in the secret things is to expose hypocrisy in us. Doesn't that make sense? That if I'm so willing to be seen in public, doing public things, but it's not there in secret, what does that expose about me? Hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And also, if you want to kill hypocrisy in your life, we'll we'll talk about this in a moment, again, in Matthew 6. But if you want to kill hypocrisy in your life, what do you do? You go after the secret things. You go after this secret religion. So I want you to see this, that secret religion and hypocrisy, these things are connected, as we'll see, I I hope, more and more clearly, in God's Word. So, I want to talk to you about these things, hypocrisy, secret religion, but before we do that... Before we dig in a little deeper, I want to ask you this question. Is Jesus really concerned about these things? Does Jesus really care about this hypocrisy and secret religion that we're talking about? Does it matter to him? Does it matter to Christ? And I want you to see how deeply Jesus is concerned about these things so that you will give ear to this subject this morning. He is deeply concerned. I want to share three passages of scripture quickly. That show you how concerned is Jesus with these things. He's extremely concerned. I want you to think of these three passages in the shadow of Matthew 6. Where we're going in just a moment. And here's what I mean. Matthew 6 slams these things together. That hypocrisy is connected to secret religion. Therefore, if Jesus is deeply concerned about hypocrisy in his church. Then he is deeply concerned about secret religion in his followers and in his church. What you see, in light of that connection, listen to these passages of Scripture. First one you can flip with me is Matthew 23. Is Jesus concerned about this subject that we're talking about right now? Listen to Matthew chapter 23. Now this is some of the most volatile language Jesus uses in all of the Bible. So you want to find a sin that Jesus breaks loose his tongue and begins to go after it with some hostility. This is it. Jesus is concerned about what he's about to rebuke right now. Matthew 23, he's talking to people. It says in verse 3 that they preach, but they do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They want to be seen. All this holy garment, they want people to see it. They want to look beautiful before men and holy before men. They do it to be seen by others. Verse 6. And they love the place of honor at feasts and best seats. And in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Oh, they love that. They love to sit in those places of honor where everybody knows that's an honorable man. That's a spiritual man. That's a good woman right there. They love that stuff. They love to be called rabbi. Call me teacher. Give me some respect here. They love to do things to be seen by men. Skip down to verse, verse 25. Listen to this language from Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Yes, gentle Christ just pointed at people and called them hypocrites. He's serious about this. He says, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Do you get it? You're doing it to be seen this way. But what about the inside? If you don't get that analogy, keep going. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly, outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look pretty on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. He's serious about this. This is some of the most harsh language Christ has used in rebuking people. This is a serious thing. So is he concerned about hypocrisy and your secret religion? Yes. Christ is very concerned about these things. Let me give you another example. Acts chapter 5. You don't turn there. Verse 1 through 11. Acts chapter 5 verse 1 through 11 is a very interesting story, right? It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira who were dropped dead in the middle of a church meeting. Imagine that happening today. Interesting story, but what's the point? What's the point in Acts 5? You've got Barnabas in Acts 4. Had laid, he had sold this property and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and lay it at the apostles' feet. What we have is a comparison here. And so what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira? Why did they get struck dead in the middle of a church meeting? Why did it happen that way? Because they lied. They did what they did, and they said, look, I sold all of this, and this is everything that we got. And Peter told them, look, you didn't even have to sell it, you didn't even have to give it all, but why did you lie? Why did you say you gave it all, and you didn't? And God drops them dead, him and his wife, in a church meeting, because God is concerned, Christ is concerned about hypocrisy. So very early on in the church, he's going out of his way to drive this stuff out, to make a point. That he does not want hypocrisy in his church. That you're just doing it to look a certain way. You're just trying to look like Barnabas. Rather than it being real and being genuine. Let me give you one more. Jesus is concerned about this. Because I want you to listen to me when we get to Matthew chapter 6. Revelation chapter 3. Listen. Jesus looks at the church in Sardis. In verse 1 he's writing to the church The angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars. Listen to what he says to this church, this local church. He says this. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. So here's this picture of Jesus looks on his church because he's concerned about his church. He loves his church. He gave himself for his church. He loves it. So he looks on his church. And with these eyes, these piercing eyes of omniscience, he sees past the reputation. These people have a reputation of being spiritual and honorable and and godly people. That's a good, healthy church. But Jesus sees right past the reputation. He says, you're dead. Wake up, you're dead. And so I hope you see that Jesus is very... Concern about a church looking Or having a reputation on the outside But on the inside lacking the secret Religion and the secret authenticity Now since Christ is so concerned about this Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 This is the main place I want to go Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 This is where we'll be Matthew chapter 6 Christ is concerned about hypocrisy and your secret religion. Therefore, let's look at his teaching on it in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Read it with me, please. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The first thing I want us to notice in this passage of Scripture is the larger context. This is in the context of Jesus' most famous sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. So sitting in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And what Christ is doing is He is showing in this, in Matthew, especially in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 6 right here, especially in these parts of the Sermon on the Mount, He's showing the high standards of God. He is showing us the high standards of God. As opposed to the lowered standards that the religious leaders of the day had begun to lower their standards of God for their own exaltation. Because if they lower their standards, they might can look like they obey them, right? And so Jesus here is exalting the real standards of God. He's pulling from the Old Testament. He's pulling from the religion of the day. And he's saying, here is the real standard of God, the high standards of God. Now, I want you to see that Matthew chapter five. If you back up to Matthew five, Jesus tells him in verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look down at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's rebuking this idea of lowering the bar, relaxing the standard, relaxing the commandments. And he goes on to explain himself. Verse 21 You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And it goes on. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, you've lowered the standard. It's kind of like this mindset. You see it in your culture, right? Well, I ain't kill nobody. I hadn't murdered anybody. And Jesus, he he shows the real high standard of God and says, This is not just an external murder, but what about on the inside? Your sinful anger that equivocates you with murder? What about that? And he does it again in verse verse 27. You've heard that it was said. Here's that standard. And these people are misunderstanding the Old Testament standard. You shall not commit adultery. The act of adultery, the act of cheating on your spouse, that act. He, he goes after that, but then what does he say? You've heard it said that, but I'm telling you, get to the inside. Even the lust, even the lust on the inside is equal to your adultery. Because you look on a woman with lust and you committed adultery with her. So what Jesus is doing is showing this high standard of this high standards of God. It's not just about external do this or don't do that, but even what you feel can be simple. Do you realize that? It's not just that you don't sin, but you hate sin. If I said don't sin, you couldn't obey that. But if I said, hey, go past don't sin and even hate it like Christ does, you certainly couldn't obey that. Do you understand that? Not to the degree you all. Now you get to Matthew 6, same thing happened. He takes takes giving, and he takes praying, and he takes fasting. He says, yeah, those are good things. That's great. That's that's sound religion to walk in those things. But he says, look, I'm going after your motives. Your motives can be off. So, So Christ is heightening, or he's showing the real high standards of God. And it's not just about you praying, giving, and fasting, but even about your motives in doing those things. Why are you doing it? To be seen by men, or before your Father before your Father who is in heaven. And so when Jesus teaches this, here's a question. What is Jesus accomplishing by showing the high standards of God in the Sermon on the Mount? Or especially in the place in, in Matthew 6 and at? What is Jesus accomplishing by doing that? And let me mention two things that he's accomplishing. Number one, this makes the cross exceedingly beautiful. Do you see that? That the more you understand your sinfulness, and trust me, you don't get your sinfulness yet. You don't know how far you have really fallen. You say, I feel so sinful before this, God. Yes, but listen, you don't know the half of it. And so when Jesus raises the bar and hides the standard, we begin to realize, man, we have failed miserably before this God. Man, we need the cross. We need the one who came on a rescue mission to save. The one that went to the cross, laid down his life, suffered in our place, took away our sins. We need him. We need him. And praise God, he's coming. makes the cross exceedingly, exceedingly beautiful. This was something, you know... um, John Piper's contribution. Many of you know John Piper, a teacher, uh, a pastor for a while. He, his contribution, as I see it, to the church and his time, in a lot of ways, has to do with bringing out these inward truths. Okay, That it's not just about you doing the right thing, but joy in Christ. Did you know it's a sin for you not to rejoice in Christ Jesus or to mourn over your sin? He's like he, he helped a generation pull out these inward things. That the standard's not just external. But what about the inside? What about the, not just reading his word, but delighting in his word? He says it's a sin if I neglect his word. Yeah, but it's a sin if you read his word and don't delight in it. And he helped pull that out. I think he he God used him in a large way to help a generation to see that. And as he did that, he, he talks about in one of his conferences how people begin to send him emails and, and, and letters and things like that that would say things that he wasn't expecting. Like like, man, you, you when you said that was sin, this internal stuff, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. And people begin to fear and that's what prompted him to write the book says, What do I do when I don't desire God? So you see that working when the standard is heightened, we begin to see our weakness and we can't miss it. And the cross becomes beautiful. Listen, I want you to see the same concept with our children. I've heard people tell me before, look, you can't hold your children to the same standard you hold yourself to. Because, and we're talking about unconverted children, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So how can you hold them to the same standard? So you need to lower the standard for them. And I'll say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Because here's what you do. You lower that standard to something that they can actually attain. At least they think they can attain it. You create little Pharisees. The standard is lower. They think they can obey it. They think that they're okay and they're fine. No. Keep the standard where Christ puts it so that they realize. I can never keep it. I need Christ. I need the one who came and died for me. This is what I mean by it beautifies the cross for Jesus to lay out this High standard. But but here's, here's the other side of that. And I want you to see this. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that's not the main thing Jesus is doing. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing us towards our sanctification. He is pushing us towards sanctification. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Matthew 6, 6 says, When you pray, go into your closet. Pray to your Father who's in the secret place. Jesus' main concern in saying that was not... Well, I'm going to tell them to go pray in the secret place. And then they're not going to do it and know that they need to the cross. That's true. That's true in a sense. But that's not why he's saying it. He wants you to obey this. He's saying when you pray, go into the secret place and pray to your father. He's going after obedience and sanctification in us in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the main point. He's going after sanctification in his people. So let me ask you that. When we read that a moment ago, we read through Matthew 6. About practicing your righteousness. About giving and praying and fasting. Was there something in that that prodded you to obedience? Do you feel prodded to sanctification and obedience to God? When you read those those truths you find there in Matthew chapter 6. Because I think you ought to. I think you ought to feel prodded to obedience. Because it's the reason Jesus is saying those things. So, here's what I want us to do. Matthew 6, we've read this passage. I want you to notice some repetitive themes that are in Matthew 6, verse 1 through 18. And what I mean is phrases that Jesus repeats or ideas that Jesus repeats through this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, there's three, three repetitive themes here. Three repetitive themes. Number one, in Matthew 6, verse 1 through 18, number one, first repetitive theme here. Is practice righteousness is assumed in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. In other words, are you saved? Or are you a follower of Christ? Well, then practice righteousness, practicing righteousness is assumed. Like surely, that's what they do. That's what Christians do. It's assumed in Matthew 6, as Jesus teaches, verse 1 through 8. Let me show you that, okay? Hear me out. Practice righteousness is assumed here. Verse 1, he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, he doesn't say practice righteousness, or he doesn't even tell them to do that. He just says, It's just assume. Of course, my people will practice righteousness. Now, he, he gets in there and tweets how you do it, no doubt. But surely my people will practice righteousness. Okay, what do you mean? Here's more explanation. Listen to the repetition. Verse 5 says, When you pray, he just assumes it. When you pray. Verse 7, and, excuse me, yeah, verse 2, sorry, thus, when you give, then verse 5, when you pray, and then look at verse 16, and when you fast. He's just assuming, my people will do these things. When you pray, when you fast, when you give, he's just assuming that it's going to happen because that's what, that's what Christians, what Christians do. So this first one in verse 2, when you give to the needy. The idea is, of course Christians will give to the needy. They know what they've been freely given by God. Do you understand that? That when we're being encouraged about giving to the needy, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for, for example, we're being encouraged to give, to be generous people. Of course Christians will be generous people. They know what they've been given by God. But listen how Paul expresses this. In the middle of telling us to be generous people in 2 Corinthians chapter 8... He says in chapter 8, verse 9, he says this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, him coming as a man, dying on the cross, laying down his life for you, that you might become rich. Obviously, spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. And he lays out, this is how God has dealt with us. That he was rich, but made himself poor, that we might become rich through him. And so he says, now take your giving. Of course Christians would give. They're freed up from the love of the world. They're freed up from the love of the stuff of this world. So that they can freely give, freely be generous. Of course they will. Jesus assumes it. He says, when you give, when you give. Verse 5, when you pray. When you pray. Of course a Christian prays, right? It all began when they first came to Christ at conversion. Because it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It began there, and of course you pray. You don't persuade a living man to breathe. You don't persuade a, a, an infant baby to cry out to his mom. And in the same way, Christians pray. I'm not saying there's not weakness there or or, or We need to be strengthened in our prayer lives. But Christians, is just what they do. They pray. Just like they give, they pray. Of course they do. And this can be explained by the gospel, right? Think about the gospel. Think about the access you had to God before you were converted. You didn't have access to God. Your prayers were going before an enemy of yours. It's going to pour out wrath on you one day. You had no access to to the throne of God. You, You couldn't do that. Isaiah nine two says your sin has separated you from God so that He will not hear. And then all of a sudden Christ comes, lays down His life for you, t- takes as a, as a substitution. He takes your place, takes your death, takes death for us all. And now the door that's been kicked open is we can have access to God. We can pray. And that's part of that. We get to pray to Him now. So why would we neglect this? Of course Christians are going to be generous. Of course Christians are going to Pray, of course they pray. When you pray, verse sixteen. When you fast, Christians fasting is just assumed here. It's just assumed. It's the same assumption in Matthew nine fifteen. In Matthew nine fifteen, where Jesus speaks about um, when the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. Christ is the bridegroom. He says, "When I leave, when I sin on high, then my people will fast." It's just assumed that they will fast. Now, why is fasting? alongside giving and praying in the life of the Christian? Why is it assumed alongside those things? Well, if you study this topic of fasting, if you do a little study of this topic, what you find out is fasting is mainly about something like this. I want more of Christ. He's not here, and I want more of Jesus. I want Christ. I've got these hungers in my body, and I want to lay aside my hungers because I hunger for Christ. I want more of Him. So here's the reality. Christians want more of Christ. They want more than morality. They want more than peace. Christians want Christ. And because of that, of course they fast. Just like, of course, they pray. Just like, of course, they give. So practical righteousness or practicing righteousness is, is, is just assumed by Jesus that Christians will do that. Now, Jesus knows that we can get off track with these things. And we can begin to be wrongly motivated. If we practice these things. We can begin to be wrongly motivated. He knows that, right? He knows that we can begin to be motivated by being seen by others. And so, and so that brings us to the next, the next repetitive theme here. Number two is this. Hypocritical motives are condemned by Jesus here. Hypocritical motives are condemned by Jesus, remember hypocrisy is this idea of doing things to be seen by others, not not content with just being seen by your Father who's in heaven. So I want you to notice this warning that Jesus keeps giving about hypocritical motives. Look at verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness, listen, before other people in order to be seen by them. This is a caution. This is a warning. Beware, he says, of doing it to be seen by them. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Listen, that they may be praised by others, that they might be seen by others, that they might be praised by others. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Listen, that they may be seen by others. They might be seen by others. You might be praised by others. You might be seen by others. And again, we see it in verse 16. It says, do not look gloomy when you fast. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This is the sin. Of loving the applause of men more than the approval of God. Loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus. I want you to think of how serious this is. Jesus killed a man and his wife in the early church for this. This has led many, many people to hell. John 12, 43, it speaks about a group of people. It says they believed in Christ, but they did not confess him. Why? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. This has led people to hell. This is serious, these hypocritical motives in doing religious things. So I think we especially need this warning. This is a warning for believers. It's not a, it's not a, this is not a warning for Muslims necessarily or, 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 or uh, Hindus. It's not this is a warning for believers is a warning to his disciples. We at Grace Community Church need this warning. Why? Because we do these things. These things are highly esteemed from us, right? There's there's practice righteousness here. There's giving here, supporting missionaries, supporting laborers for the gospel, helping people adopt adopt children. Like those things are highly esteemed here, right? Prayer is highly esteemed here. Prayer of of, of Uh, You know, praying in our meetings on Sunday and prayer meetings that go on all throughout the week in people's homes—like these things are are, are—they're done. They're obeyed. They're they're highly esteemed. Fasting, done corporate fastings before. So listen, we are in danger at Grace Community Church that if these things are highly esteemed, that our motives would be to begin to do them to be seen by others. We must be warned by this. We have to be warned by this. Now, some people might. You might ask it, it, why is it so tempting to continue on in this sort of sin? Let me say this. Why is it so tempting? What is one reason it's so tempting to go after this sin of hypocrisy? Listen, because it works. Do you know that? Jesus, notice he does not say, don't practice your righteousness to be seen by others because it won't work. He doesn't say that. He says, over and over again, they have received their reward. It worked. They've received their reward again. It worked. They've received their reward again. It worked. Here's the reality you practice those things to be seen by others, it will work. You will be seen as spiritual, but you'll be worldly. It's a warning to us, and it's so addictive. Think of how it might be more addictive than drugs. At least drugs have consequences of jail time or consequences of ruining your health and ruining your body. But this, you could just be living your life. Living your life, looking spiritual, looking great. And it has it has an addictive quality to it. It's very, very dangerous. And I think we need to be warned. Now, some people might ask this. How, how do I know? How do I know if I'm walking in these hypocritical Motives that Jesus hates. How do I know? And here's my encouragement to everybody here based off of Matthew chapter 6 is this. How do you know if you're walking in hypocrisy? How do you know? Examine your secret religion. Examine your secret religion. Now Jesus puts this forward in Matthew 6. He puts forward that your secret religion, the secret thing before God, your secret religion is a great exposure of hypocrisy. It's an exposure of hypocrisy. I want you to think about that. Why? Why would men frequent the prayer meeting but not the secret place alone with God? Because one will get him glory and another will not. You understand that? Why would men be so diligent and faithful in their jobs? But lack so much diligence in the secret place of devotion to his word. Or lacks so, lack so much faithfulness as it relates to secret giving and secret serving other people. Why was that true? Because in their job they get glory. You get no glory in the secret things. Hypocrisy gets exposed. That if these things are going on in the public eye. But it's missing in the secret place with God. Then it exposes hypocrisy in us. You see how examining your secret religion, think about your secret giving, think about your secret prayer, think about your secret fasting. You see how examining that can expose the hypocrisy of why are we so out to do the things that everyone sees, but not the things, not the things that are unseen. Now I want you to understand. As we say that before we move on, I want you to understand this: Jesus is not belittling. Or, or tearing down or discouraging public religion. I don't, have, I don't know if there's maybe a better way to say that. Public religion as in corporate prayer and corporate fasting together or a zeal in preaching the gospel or a, a zeal in giving testimony of what God has done or us praying together in those prayer meetings through the week and praying with fire in your bones. Like, Jesus is not discouraging that stuff. If we take the whole Bible, we see Jesus encouraging those things. We see the church all throughout Acts giving themselves to prayer, public prayer together, public reading of the scriptures. So it's not a discouragement of those things, but he's just trying to keep us from being hypocrites in them. He's just trying to keep us from being hypocrites in them. So the answer to hypocrisy is not to tone it down in public religion. That's not it. It's not, how hey, you know what? Um. Just tone it down in your zeal, tone it down in your preaching of the gospel, tone it down in your in your prayer life. Like tone, tone that public stuff. That's not the answer to hypocrisy. In fact, that'll backfire, right? Well, all of a sudden, as a church, we begin to see, we used to see it's real spiritual and so-and-so prays like this and preaches like this. And now all of a sudden, we'll begin to say, oh, it's real spiritual that he has no zeal. Look how somber he is. Like that's what, that's what how it doesn't work that way. So how do you, what is the answer for hypocrisy then? And according to Christ in Matthew 6, it's the secret place. When you give, not in your right hand, but your left hand Do doing. When you, when you pray, go into your secret place. It's going after secret religion is the answer. It's an answer to hypocrisy. Which brings me to the third theme you see going through Matthew 6. Third repetitive theme, and it's this. Number three. Jesus' call into secret religion. Jesus calling us. Jesus calls us in. This thing I keep saying, secret religion. Now you see it all through here. Look at verse 3 again. 6 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You think about that moments in your life, nobody knows, but God sees all things. This holy made sense what I'm doing in the light of the fact that God sees it. You think of moments in life like that? Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We're talking about just moving away to the Father for time. Slipping away to be alone just with Him. In your life, a secret place of prayer. Look at verse 17. But When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. There should be many, many things. Okay? If you want to fight hypocrisy that Christ hates, there should be many things that you do in your life that only makes sense in light of the fact that God sees it. Many things that you do in your life that, that you know what this only makes sense I'm not getting glory from men this only makes sense because God is here. He's the one that promised to be with me and never leave me nor forsake me and not only that he's the omnipresent one that sees all things and what I do only makes sense in light of him. There ought to be a lot of that a lot of that in a Christian's life who's fighting, fight, uh, fighting hypocrisy. Now I think some of us, maybe we could say that we we remember times of experiencing this, okay? Experiencing this kind of secret, religion, but feeling like over time it's faded. Now I just want you to think about that for a minute. I thought about this a lot as I was being pricked by the Spirit of God, looking at these scriptures. Think, Think about when you were converted. Think about when you were, back when you were first converted and just... You're first converted and just that joy of just slipping away, just getting away from the world, away from everybody else. Nobody even has to know where I'm going, but just slipping away and getting along with the Father for several hours. His His word before me, crying out to Him in prayer. You remember just the joy of that or the pleasure? Think about when you first converted, the pleasure of just nobody else knows, just just. Giving to somebody, this giving to the needy or this serving somebody. And nobody knows it in the world, but God himself knows. In the pleasure of serving your father like that. Living a life just in light of him and him alone. What those memories do to you? I was thinking about Christ. He, he didn't just call us to this. Seeker religion, but he actually lived it out. Listen to this in Luke chapter 5. Listen. Verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So now the crowds are coming around. The multitudes are there. And what does Christ, what does Christ do? Verse 16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He just, the multitudes are there. He's famous. And. But what's, what's his rhythm? He'd withdraw to desolate places, and there he'd pray. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, In these days, as if this was just a pattern of his life, he says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Just by himself, on the mountain, all night, in prayer to God. Does, does this seem foreign to you? This secret life, this, this secret religion before God, just before your father. Just before Him. And there's men and women throughout history that have taken this seriously and they turned the world upside down for the glory of God as God poured out revival on them. I'll give you one example in that. I want to read you a couple passages from, from David Brainerd's life of this secret life. Listen to just a couple phrases here. David Brainerd is a missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s. God poured out revival in this this man's sphere of labor. Monday, April 19, 1742. I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for His grace, especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry. In the afternoon, God was with me of a truth. Oh, it was blessed company indeed. God enabled me to agonize in prayer. That I was quite wet with perspiration, though in the shade and the cool of the wind, my soul was drawn out very much for the world and for the multitudes of souls. Fast forward, April 25th, 1742. This morning I spent about two hours in secret duties. Secret duties. It was, an, it was enabled more than ordinarily to agonize for immortal souls. Though it was early in the morning and the sun scarcely shined at all, Yet my body was quite wet with sweat. I felt much pressed now, as frequently of late, and of late, to plead for the meekness and calmness of the Lamb of God in my soul. October twenty fifth, in the evening, I enjoyed the divine presence in secret prayer. It was a sweet and comfortable season to me. My soul longed for God, for the living God. Enjoyed a sweet solemnity of spirit and longing desire. After the recovery of the divine image in my soul, then shall I be satisfied when I shall awake in God's likeness and never before? And we could go on and on. But what I'm trying to get you to see is this that Christ not only calls us into secret religion, but he lives it out himself, and there are men and women throughout history that have taken this seriously. This call to kill hypocrisy. What about the secret place? What about the secret place? Now, why should you give attention to secret religion? Why should you give attention to secret religion? Now, there's a warning. There's a warning and a wooing, okay? A warning and a wooing here. Now, the warning we've already talked about, right? Pursue secret religion so you don't die a hypocrite. That's the warning. But what about the wooing, okay? Essentially, we're talking about this. We're talking about Slipping away from this world. Think about what we're talking about when we're talking about the secret religion, the secret place. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about this. And tell me this isn't good. Slipping away from the world, from your phone, from all the stuff, from all people, and doing what? Getting along with the Father. What does he say in Matthew 6 over and over again? Your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. Again, your father who sees in secret will reward you. You get to be, let me woo you here. You get to be alone. Alone. With the God of glory, the source of all joy. The captain of your salvation. You get to be alone with him. The gospel has purchased this for individuals. Do you realize that? We put a a lot of stake in the idea of the importance of the local church, and we ought to. We put a lot of importance because God's Word does. But here's another reality. Is that Christ died for you? He loved you and gave himself for you, Galatians 2.20 says. And so you get to get alone with him. You had no access to him. But now you, as a man, as a woman, as a person, you get to go to God now. A blessing of Him dying for you and making a way. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sinners, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. You get as an individual to, to gain Him, to draw near to Him. Does that woo you in? To seek religion? I think we should consider that very ridiculous To neglect. Such a door being kicked open. Okay. I want to close with some practical, very, very practical encouragement series, practical thoughts as we lead into a time of prayer over these things. Um, People are making resolutions left and right right now, right? Resolutions here, resolutions there. Is that biblical? Is it biblical to make resolutions? Somebody that's made a resolution. Oh, <laughs> well, let's think about What, what is a resolution? Is is say reflecting on where you've been and resolving to make an adjustment or change. It's reflecting on reflecting on where you've been and thinking about that. What's been going on and resolving to make some sort of adjustment, some sort of change. And here's what we know: reflecting is biblical, right? Reflecting on where you've been is a biblical thing. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. You reflect on on what's happened. Asking God to search you. Or what about 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Reflect, think, examine. It's a biblical thing. What about resolving? Resolving. When you make your, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, when you make vows to God, do not delay to pay them, yeah. Resolving, make making resolutions, re- resolving. Do they? Psalm seventy-six, eleven says, "Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them." So done the right way, I would say these resolutions can be good and glorious to Christ and biblical. And so here's here's my practical encouragement to everybody here. While everybody else around you is making resolutions about things that do not matter in eternity. Or about things that advance their own placement in society and their own view, the way people see them. As everybody around you does that, would you make resolutions about secret religion? About the secret place? About the secret duties of a Christian? Would you make resolutions there? So very quickly, I'm just going to give you five. And and what I want to encourage you to do, I told you just a practical (coughs) encouragement here at the end. Is I want to encourage you to take these five things later on. And you spend time doing that. You spend time reflecting where have you been and resolving to make adjustments if, if adjustments need to be made. So here they are, these five, and then we'll spend some time just praying over these things for the new year. Number one, secret giving. Now I'm just getting that straight out of Matthew 6, right? So reflecting on how is this secret giving, a secret life, not just before men, but before God. And then making... Adjustment, resolution. Number two, secret prayer. Reflecting on my prayer life, my slipping away to a secret place. Be with the Father. Oh God, I don't want these these examples of Christ, these examples of David Brainerd. I don't want them to seem so foreign to me. Number three, secret fasting. Fasting. Seek your fasting reflecting over the year. Did I let another year go by? Still not filled with fasting and prayer and resolving to do something about it. What about number four? It's kind of getting outside of Matthew 6 here. Number four, communion in the word. Reflecting on that. Look, no way forward. We've said this many times, right? exercise yourself towards godliness. There's no godliness without this spiritual exercise towards these things, which certainly involves the word of God and prayer. Reflecting on how has that been and making some resolve here of what I'm going to do in the future. And here's one maybe you hadn't heard. The last one, number five, secret worship. Secret worship. We talk about that a lot of um, at this church. If we want to be a church that grows, we... The more we see the worth of Jesus Christ, we look at our own worship we go, man, that's weak. Right? Because we go, man, he is worth the highest praise. And all the angels are bowed down, worshiping his holy name. And we come in here just cold. Now, we're all in that battle together. so. We're all fighting that together. We talk about that corporately, wanting to grow in our worship to God, the one who's worthy. Well, listen, if there's no secret worship, it's not going to happen corporately. Reflect on that. That is the only time that I lift up my voice in praise and song. I know that's, I know worship's not limited to that, but it's the only time I lift up my voice and and shouts and, and praises to God. Is it only before others? What about secret worship? And what can I resolve to do to change that? So I would encourage you, this is obviously different than what we typically as a church do in the word, but I want to leave you with that and ask you to take some time today, tomorrow, very soon, and just reflect and resolve in those areas. And let's, get, let's ask God to do this. What, what about that? What, what power to think about Grace Community Church? Where God's moving and working in every believer. Not just doing things to impress each other. But seen by God in the secret place. Walking out secret religion. That's a powerful thing for church. For church to have <clears> that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would forgive us, God, for our hypocrisy. God, we know Every one of us knows this of a truth, God, that we have done things at times, Lord, and we did it not for your glory, but for our own. And we hate it, Lord. And God, we don't hate it enough. I pray you would increase our hatred of hypocrisy, God. And God, I pray, please, Lord, as a church, as individuals, don't let us sit long in that sin. Lord, I pray that the moment that the Hypocritical motives arise in us. The prideful motives arise in us. In that moment, God, would you please convict us? Would you even discipline us, God? And God, we just open ourselves up to that. Whatever it takes, Lord. Express your love to us, God, even if it's in discipline, God, that we might not die hypocrites. Forgive us for it, Lord, and change, change us, Lord. God, I pray that you. Would increase our intimacy with you in the secret place. Our devotion to you in the secret things, God. Our readiness, God, and faithfulness to serve people and give secretly, God. When only you know. God, make that such a joy. And it is, Lord. We just proclaim that to you. It is such a joy to have access to you. It's such a joy, Lord, to have access to your presence and to live in light of you. So Lord, I pray that as a church you would increase us in these areas, Lord. That you would make us a secretly generous people, God. You'd make us people to frequent the secret place and secret fasting, God. That you would teach us what it is to worship you in a not just in a public setting, but in a private setting, God. Teach us what it is to worship you like that. God, increase our devotion to your word. God, I pray that you would allow us daily, day after day after day, this coming year and for the rest of our lives, Lord, to open up your word and see beautiful truth there, Lord, and worship your holy name. God, it seems so basic, but we need your help with it, Lord. And we praise you, Lord, that you're so willing to help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.